If it is to be said, so it be, so it is. This is Even Star Waco, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we travel to the gilded halls of Logan Roy as we discuss the final season of Succession. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is With Open Eyes, coverage of the final episode of Succession. And of course, we will be spoiling all of Succession, including also episode 9, which we regrettably were unable to record first, so those thoughts may get in here as well. Um, I assume no one will be mad at that. It's because I was but being shivery too our- hard. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> You guys do not know how hard Emily shivs all the time. Uh, Before we get into our discussion, I do want to thank everyone who joined us possibly just for our succession coverage. I uh, hope you had a good time listening to us be completely insane and talk about things that you would not expect normal people to talk about when uh, talking about this show, like the feudal mode of production and stuff like that. Um, But just so you know where we're going from here, we are going to be taking a little bit of a break. And then we will be returning to our normal Lord of the Rings coverage. Uh, We will be starting Return of the King sometime in July. Um, We also plan to do an episode on The Legend of Zelda, The Tears of the Kingdom, which me and Emily are working through as we speak, and just other things that we normally cover in our Lord of the Rings coverage. Um, I would talk about upcoming television shows in the next year and a half, but we are in a writer's strike and we support the writers, so who knows when. Andor or The Rings of Power will be coming, but that's kind of what our podcast horizon looks like. So thank you for listening. And to our patrons and regular listeners, uh, please stay tuned near the end of the episode where we're going to go over some changes and some scheduling bits for you as well. You are good to go. Kick us off. Okay, here's my question. Does it matter in the end who won the Game of Thrones? No, not at all. Um, (laughs) I I feel like the succession people are really missing out because at least Game of Thrones, in the millions of ways that it kind of fumbled the final season, it at least had the dragon burn down the Iron Throne. So you kind of, you know, were forced to put it in the like relatives, you know, the meaning you're supposed to take out of it is pretty clear or clearly communicated. (laughs) Whereas I think it's more telling that this series, Succession, started episode one, season one, with some nondescript big business deal between Walter and Waystar Royco, and it ends with another nondescript, you know, business deal between Waystar Royco and Gojo. Like, the actual fundamentals of that, it doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, I think it does matter in terms of Tom winning is not some kind of, like, (laughs) either in... It is an indictment of his character, but it's not really him winning but it's what it tells us more about how these things generally go and also kind of just how bad of fuck-ups the Shiv or the Shiv kids, <laughs> the Roy kids are. The Paging Shiv kids Dr. are yet Freud. to come. That much. <laughs> but uh, like, it really doesn't matter. I do think there is meaning to be gleamed of the fact that Tom was chosen um, over, let's say, the other three. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on, especially going back to season three, where Logan thought Tom was his kid for a little bit when he's helping him pee at the shareholder conference and stuff like that. But, like, I don't think there is winning, first of all. I think there's, like, many many issues I have with your question, really. There is no winning. There's no Iron Throne. Um, Like, is Tom a winner? Sure, he comes out on top, but... Yeah, it's 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 silly. It's silly. It's a silly kind of debate, even though that's kind of, you know, 
what the show is about, like who is going to succeed Logan Roy the same way as like who is going to win the Game of Thrones. But in the end, it's not really about that. Um, but maybe I'm off base. What do you think about that? I mean, I, I think I basically agree with you. Like, so I feel like it doesn't matter who won, like you say, because Tom's win isn't a win. They've all lost. But I, I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, the name of the show, Succession, whatever, whatever. But I, I, I think the show's central question is and always has been, will Kendall be the successor? And and I think it has stuck very clearly to answering that question. Um, and the answer is no, um, which is why, though he lost and though he is now the least important character of them all, it's it's on him that we end the show because he is the one who sort of had everything to win, everything to play for and then everything to lose. Um, whereas, you know, guys like Tom had everything to win um, and and did, in fact, win it. But that that's kind of the uninteresting story in a way. Um, and I think it's just kind of interesting, the especially sort of watching the like meta around it form that people are trying to treat this like it was a thing where kind of like it was a vintage 2010s thing where it was like oh we're team pita team gail um i'm mm -hmm, house mm -hmm. pro house start pro house whatever um and i think the show has never actually really been interested in that you know for a variety of reasons that we've always all, always talked about on our coverage of it which is like you're not really meant to be rooting for any of these pe these people this show wants you to see that they're all shitheads but i think it's interesting how tightly it stuck to this core question of did kendall win and 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 in the end that's the question it's interested in and and who actually won is ultimately unimportant um like i've seen people as well which uh, the people who openly admit to this are just the loves of my life i'm so glad they are like willing to do it who have been like i didn't even realize tom was ceo at the end they just like blanked out or whatever or weren't like fully paying attention to what was going on at the back half of it and we're like oh it's over it's not kendall and and like that to me is the perfect expression of what this show is so good at which is like sticking to the message and the message is kendall will not be, be the successor and so these people didn't take away that tom is the new ceo because ultimately that's immaterial um ultimately what the show is concerned with is kendall and and did can kendall do it um and seeing it kind of come back so cleanly especially like at the start where we see it it's kind of that like refresh of the the, the opening bit of um episode one season one and like seeing how tight of a narrative it actually served and also having this feeling that like as we see that last shot of tom and shiv in the car that last shit of the last shit that last shot rather of roman in the bar and being like having this thought of I never want to hear from these characters again. Like, I don't want a season five. Not that this isn't one of the best shows I've ever seen. Not that I didn't in immensely enjoy these characters' stories. I just, like, it's done. It's over. I don't need to know anything about them. I don't need to know what happens to Tom and Shiv's baby. I don't need to know what happens to Kendall. I don't need to know what happens to Roman. I'm, like... The story served its purpose. It's done. It's over. The question is, does Kendall win? The answer is no. And and that's it. And I don't think I've ever seen something tie itself up, like have such a complete and successful ending. I mean, it's been a really long time, I feel. Yeah, no, I, I think this was like a perfect ending. And I think a lot of that is because the episode and I would say this entire season really focused on the personal relationship between the kids, the Roy kids. Um, cause there's, you know, there's a way to write this story. And I don't think this is what Jesse Armstrong or Mark Mylod were intending and doing at any point, but there's a way to write this where Matson kind of fucks them in the end and does, you know, super business moves. And that's what happens. Um, but no, it's literally the three kids in a room, like 
draw you know drawing blood against each other literally oh. almost to the point uh where uh you know he's like opening up roman's like sutures on oh. his forehead and then matson just gets to be like the fortinbras character who just like stumbles uh-huh. in as like what the fuck everyone's already dead okay sure whatever i'm now the king of denmark or whatever um i don't know how hamlet actually goes <laughs> but um that I love how personal it was. And, you know, a lot of people have had complaints like, oh, there's not enough Jerry in the season or there's not enough this, that or another kind of side character. I think like Hugo probably got the most screen time of all the like kind of Greek chorus, you know, vassal lord type characters. Um, But it was really just about the kids. And Shiv deciding not to vote for Kendall was a result of, you know, the personal relationship between them. Like, it was bubbling over. She saw the habits that were coming out in Ken when he was sure that he had it locked up. Um, habits we've seen of his going all the way back to that first season. Um, and then she got conflicted. And then when Kendall starts, like, beating up Roman and then also, um, you know, denying the whole, you know, I killed a kid thing, uh, which all gets fucked up. And then I don't think she... I don't think anyone's a fan of like Roman being like, oh, yeah, by the way, Kendall's kids, you know, one of them is definitely not yours. <laughs> um, and the... The other one probably is, but, you know, we don't really know. Um, So it just, like, it was the three of them just essentially shiving themselves in a room, like good Roman lords. Um, I have no way to tie Ken's name into that. Um, But uh, this is... this was what it was about. It was about them, whether it was them ble- bleeding each other in that boardroom right at the end or them, like, drinking that unholy concoction in their mom's... uh whatever beach house kitchen that doesn't have any food, just like standard waspy white people. Um, They always have fridges and nothing you can make with it at the middle of the night. Um, Like it was really about them. And I think I really appreciated that because there's a way to just like let the story be untold and be told about the business side of things. And it was very much more interested in the personal relationships between the kids and their father, who's obviously now gone. Yeah. See, I I think there's something really, um, when I say this, like, it's a fucking revelation. I, there's just something really interesting to me in how this show has ended because of the way that it deals with, like, because of what it reflects on their relationships, which is, like, you know, we've talked on in most of our coverage about how, like, kind of futile this whole thing is. And, you know, Logan is the king, and and it's all the squabbling princes um, and princess, haha, beneath, um, who who are, like, trying, vying for for the, the kingdom at the end of it. Um And yet, I think by virtue of Tom being the one to come out on top, um, there is something sort of, it is kind of futile, but it feels like it is kind of a more sort of modern, liberal, kind of capitalist outcome in the sense that Tom is a social climber. And Tom has done a lot of his climbing um, by virtue of marriage, um, by virtue of being married to Shiv, and also... um, by virtue of having knocked Shiv up, um, unlike Kendall, and there is something, you know, like intensely futilely symbolic about Kendall's children not being his biological children. Um, you know, that that sort of infertility is is a huge no-no um for 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 these sort of feudal relationships, these these feudal um lines of succession. Um, you know, Tom has does not have that problem, but but Tom is also the go-getter. And 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 the thing that is ultimately funny is that like while you know Shiv and Roman and Kendall are, you know, in the previous episode at their their father's um, funeral, all still vying in the middle of the, the funeral for the right to be the next king. 
Um, it's actually the fact that Tom, who isn't at the funeral because he's at work, that ultimately mm -hmm. makes him more palatable to Madsen. And, you know, there is this moment where Madsen finds out from Shiv, I think, who makes a kind of throwaway line about it, that 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 um, Tom isn't there because he's at work. And you just see the like, you know, the, the Calvinist capitalist light in Madsen's eyes as he realizes that, like, Tom is the guy who does the work. He is the guy. He is the modern guy who who's willing to do the bitch work. Um, and that is ultimately, I think, what what secures Tom his position at the end of it. And so even though there's this sort of semi feudal kind of approach to it, really, Tom is the he is the social climber. He is the Andrew Carnegie of it, the, the self-made man almost. Um, and, and so while you see like these kids who are so used to the feudal order, um, you know, and also sort of like effectively kneecapped by the feudal order because none of them are ever going to have jobs. None of them are ever going to do anything interesting. Um, it is also that feudal order that, that ultimately, um, it ends it for all of them. Um, and, and, you know, there's the kind of violence, um, that, that is so much a part of that. I think the, like, we'll have to deal with Kendall and Roman, um, and everything that goes on there. But then there's also like the fact that it was never going to be Shiv. I mean, I've never seen, dumber discourse in my life than all of the people who are like succession is misogynist because Shiv didn't win it. Like, actually, this is probably the most accurate um, portrayal of patriarchy I've seen in a long time. And like, it is because it acknowledges the feudal ordering of it. Shiv was never going to be anything. The best Shiv could do is what she got. Um, and that's just because that's how the world works. But that's also like she was so blinded by not realizing the kind of world that she was operating in and the kind of relationship that she actually had to her brothers and to her father that she was ultimately blindsided by this. And it's just so interesting how like this kind of tinge of the modern, this tinge of the globalized, the tinge of the international um, ultimately makes the this one family look vastly more archaic and 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 vastly sort of more deprecated i guess yeah no absolutely you know tom's tom's present uh, and you know all these roy kids they're like basically noted by their absence from things or when things are happening they tend to be at some kind of fancy dinner party or a fancy event or in their mom's beach house and wherever it was in this um episode uh there isn't the same like Tom actually has to work for it. And I think that feeds into that kind of uh, feudal to, you know, early capitalist uh, paradigm you're talking about, because, you know, that's when we saw that bloodlines were starting to not determine everything. Um, this is basically like the French Revolution or like pre-French Revolution, like France, like 1789 or no, 1786. Like when, you know, they're going through all sorts of like financial issues with the crown and they're just deciding whether to call like the estates general and like <laughs> the lords are so busy with their own bullshit. They don't realize that there's this whole group of like, you know, emerging bourgeoisie who is basically Tom here who um, is fighting his way. And before they know it, all of a sudden, like the nobility is like abolished. And here we go. And here we have like a nice Midwestern boy. Um, and I like the thing with the whole Shiv should have win because it would have been like a gender win or something like that the funny thing is and the thing that i really love about this ending is that in a way shiv did win yeah. you know shiv is the of the three kids she's the one who is closest to the totem of power which is now tom all the women came through of this yep. um just based on the last few minutes with tom it looks like carolina and jerry are coming along so those are so like all the like quote unquote women in the show are the ones who are going to end up being somewhat prominent members and whatever like Gojo Waystar is after this. 
Um, whereas it's the boys that are going to be in the outs or given like pity jobs to do whatever or start the hundred, um, whatever <laughs> it is, the women won. This is just what women winning in like capitalism or liberal society looks like. It is this, that because the system is founded on patriarchy and male power, the best shift can hope for is to, you know, be attached to that source of power. First, it was Logan, and now it gets to be Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the Hillary Clinton thing, right? Where Hillary Clinton allegedly is the most competent woman in the world and also the smartest woman in the world. But really, we nobody would know jack shit about Hillary Clinton if she weren't if she didn't marry who she did. And like, people will get mad at that and people will be like, oh, misogyny. But it's fucking true. Like, it is just it's fucking true. Um, Like, that's just how it goes. Same deal. This is where I'll really get myself in trouble. But same same deal with our um, ex first minister here in, in in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon. Like nobody would know who she was if she didn't have the the romantic relationships that she did. And it's not a reflection on like these women's competency or capability or intelligence or this that and the other or ambition or whatever. It's just you are limited as a woman by what patriarchy will let you do and what patriarchy and how you get your sort of entry stamp into the bergain that is patriarchy and 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 patriarchy structures is via men um and like the idea that women could ever operate in a world in which this is true in a way that is non-degrading is is batshit childish naivete um and and you just have to like get get real like it's just it was never going to work out um but one of the things that I really loved, um, and this is in the previous, this is in episode nine, um, but I feel like there were kind of tremors of, um, or I think stark contrast of in in the finale, which is um, Harriet Walters, Lady Caroline Collingwood, um, at the um, funeral, she, you know, extends this olive branch to Carrie um, and then goes and finds Marsha um, and, or goes and finds uh, the other, you know, her Carrie, and then goes and finds Marsha, and they all sit up front, um, side by side, and you know, they all share this sort of memory of, well, he was awful, but you know, well, we did all love him in one way or another, and that was, I think, possibly the most profoundly affecting moment to me of the show, and it showed the degree to which, you know, these women all. These women are not the shivs. There's a reason why Harriet Walters can't. Well, I have to stop calling her her name. Caroline Collingwood. There's a reason why she can't. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> there's like, there's a reason why she can't understand shiv and she will never understand shiv. And it's because shiv is trying to not be what a woman under patriarchy is. Um, and she's fighting it so hard. And so there's this fundamental disconnect between her and her mother. And and Harriet Walters isn't fighting it at all. She's totally leaned into it. And she's obviously better and smarter than all of the men around her. But that's not where her meal ticket is getting punched. Um, and, you know, there is this row of three other women um, who have also realized that their way to safety and security is by just kind of kowtowing to patriarchy. And it's not to say that they don't have personalities or this, that and the other of their own, but they've understood the way to succeed. Um is by by accepting um, the limitations of, of patriarchy and, and to see them all show that that kind of solidarity there, but also to recognize themselves, I think, as no longer truly in competition with one another. That was that was absolutely fantastic. Just I think it was one of the most sort of like euphoric moments of this is how wonderful writing about women can be when people think seriously about what it means to be a woman um, in, in the world that we live in. And then to contrast that in, in the finale to the outright violence of Kendall and Roman um, and, and just the horrific ways in which the men were dealing with one another. And just this realization that like 
when men have to like sublimate themselves or, or subjugate themselves to the demands of patriarchy, that expresses itself in, in, in violence and in, in brutality. Um, and women, when women do it, it, not that it is any less degrading or any less sort of like symbolically violent, but it does not involve destroying your brother's face um, in quite the way that, that Kendall did. And I just thought that was a, a such a magnificent kind of one, two punch in, in those two episodes. Yeah, I, I really, really love the four like Logan women. I don't know. I don't know what's yeah. the best, uh, most proper way to describe them. But I love that because I was just thinking about it when I watched that episode two weeks ago. It was like, I don't know how often I've seen anything like this because, you know, the like classic male philanderer or cheater under, let's say, the last like 150 years or whatever of how we imagine like men and women being is like we isolate women from the other women around the men. Yeah. That's why, like, you know, Don Draper has Betty Draper at home, and then maybe he's sleeping with one of his co-workers or his secretary in the office, and those two things, like, stay as far apart as possible. Like, there's no shared moments between them or anything, or that's what, like, the male cheater wants to do. He wants to throw up these, like, walls to basically separate all the women in his life so um, he can basically have them full-time. And just seeing the four of them sitting there in that row together, I felt was, like, one of the more powerful images from the show. Um, and I just never have ever seen anything like truly like that with like the actual like writing to undergird it and to present the meaning that it did. Um, but yeah, the, the boys being violent is that is something like for a second, I thought they were going to go full uh, mountain and over in Martell and have uh, Jeremy Strong, like gouge out his eyes and like tear open his wounds and his, Roman's head was going to explode. But I think the the urge for violence is like something very keenly there. And it's something we've seen in the male characters, uh, most of all Logan Roy, because he used to beat Roman. We what season two, like he very famously slaps Roman. And who's the first person to like step up to dad's face? It was Ken. He's like, don't you hit him. Um, and then here he is just like literally trying to gouge out his eyes um, or trying to like tear open his sutures or whatever he's having. Like that's an instinctual re response for Ken, who was just on the verge of getting what, you know, everything he wanted or what he thought everything he wanted was. And then to just have it snatched away from him by his um, at first at Shiv. But I think if they went back and revoted, I think, you know, Roman would pull his vote at that point, too. Um, <clears throat> it, it is something that's remarkable. And And there's something like. I, I think in, I, I don't know. I like, I'm really struggling to think about, cause I think at the end Roman is like, Roman is freed in a way, um, mm -hmm. of this, this glorious burden. Um, and he's freed in a way that Kendall isn't freed. Um, and you know, agreed. Yeah. Like, like, like Kendall is, or sorry, Connor is, that is a man who knows what he's about now. And he's, he solved the problem of being a, a Roy child by just being like, <laughs> fuck it. I'm going elsewhere. Um, and Shiv is now Shiv is what if Macbeth were Lady Macbeth and Lady Macbeth were Macbeth. Like, like, like Tom is very much Lady Macbeth. But the outcome for Lady Macbeth if she had been a man. Um, now, now a clueless fucking idiot who could potentially screw all of it up, Macbeth is now in this instance Lady Macbeth Aishev. Roman, I think, is freed of it. But I think there's mm -hmm. almost something like it's nauseating that I think in the end the thing that frees Roman is is the busting of the sutures, like the 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 violence of that kind of hug that initially fucks up his face. And then Kendall really going at it mountain style again in that boardroom. 
as horrible as I think it is, given that that Roman has this history of uh, of having suffered egregious childhood abuse, um, there is something kind of cleansing about it. And I think I mean that in the same way that like, you know, the 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 one character that's always on my mind um, through these episodes is Eowyn and, and, and Lord of the Rings. And I think, you know, like the the the, the violence that is done unto her, wrought unto her in, in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields and, you know, the, you know, what I think is not actually is um, empowering a, of a scene as is portrayed, like the, the no living man am I and and the, the destruction of her arm and all of the things that come after her falling under the Black Breath. Like the, those are horrible, horrible acts of violence, but they are in effect, a, a, a fiery violence that that cleanses, I guess, the deadened forest that is her life. <laughs> and there's something kind of horrible about the fact that I think that's what happened to Roman. Um, and I don't want to be like, oh, the violence is good to him. I'm glad that he was just like uh, disgustingly abused by his brother um, in just like the worst and 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 most like viscerally upsetting way imaginable. But there was something I think ultimately quite freeing or cathartic for him about it because. Kendall going to town on his face means he will never have to be CEO. Um, and and Roman fucking up royally at the the funeral and not being able to deliver a speech and, and kind of reverting to this childlike state of not truly processing or understanding death. That is another thing that has freed him from this horrible burden that is potentially being CEO of Waste Rico. And Kendall, as the central axis point of the show, doesn't have anyone to to render that violence onto him. And so like Logan, will end up just casting that violence outward, whether it's on his estranged wife or his children or his siblings or whoever now takes it at the end of this. Um, there is no one to effectively smack Kendall into shape and be like, free yourself of this nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Oh, God, that stuff about Roman is so good. I actually think the cleansing violence started at the end of episode nine when he marched into the protesters yep. and they just start beating him up. Like, I think he was looking to get beat up. I don't think like he was definitely like trying to pick a fight, but he was trying to pick a fight. So someone would just like rough him up a little yep. bit. Um, but um, not that it matters, but like my favorite character on the show is Tom. Yeah. So him like, quote unquote, winning w should be like the thing that I would most want to celebrate if I was just talking about it from like a sports team rooting interest in the show kind of way. Yeah. But I think what worked for me was Roman specifically, especially his ending, um, because I, I mean, first of all, when he first shows up in the episode, they actually like hold him back for the first 10 to 15 minutes because he went running crying to mommy um he's wearing like a nine dollar walmart <laughs> shirt when they find him there which i just absolutely love but it is so he has that like cleansing by violence that you talk about but it's also when they're in that room and they're kind of finishing up the fight and roman's like i'm out and he's saying it's nothing it's meaningless it's bullshit that's kind of been his mentality about everything so far about calypsotron about mencken or whatever it's all ip it doesn't really matter and like the, this is the first time he's really applying it to the thing they were fighting for, the throne, you know, succeeding Logan, the CEO of whatever. Like, that's kind of the moment where he's, like, out. And then I think in those last moments when you see him out going, he, the drink he's having is Jerry's favorite drink, um, which is great. But he legitimately looks happy. Um, like, I don't, I don't think it's, like, an unqualified happiness. Like, you know, this is the happiest guy in the world right now. But I think he feels good about where he is. Um, whereas Kendall, like ugh, he's the end of, <laughs> I hate to keep bringing up the Godfather, but the last shots of Kendall in this episode and of this show is basically him 
doing the Michael Corleone from the end of The Godfather Part Two after he murdered his brother. Uh, spoilers for The Godfather <laughs> Part Two. I hope that's not a big deal. But like, it's the same kind of disassociating. Oh, what the fuck am I? What am I even doing anymore? Like, really kind of uh, dour thing. Um, I loved, um, what's it called? Kendall just staring at the water. They used water or bodies of water really effectively in this episode. Yeah. Um, like, cause earlier when they're at, um, Collingwood's, uh, like summer home or whatever, and they're all like, we should go out swimming in the middle of the night where it's all dark in a foreign country where there probably isn't a, like, you know, it's, I don't expect any of these characters to die in this because that isn't what the show is about, but you are thinking about that. You're also thinking about the fact that Ken killed a kid, you know, by, you know, essentially drowning him three during a drug run. Uh, and those are things that are going through your mind. Those are things that, um, are going through our mind as Ken's just ending the series staring out at a body of water. And speaking of the kid that Kendall killed, I love that this isn't played as some big gotcha that, you know, plays on PGN or something or Pierce floats it. And then it, again, there's many ways that they could have had the Roy family crumble that was due to, exo you know, exogenous forces. Um, like whether it's Matson or PGN or a leak about Kendall um, killing a kid or Roman having, you know, showing his dick to uh, the CEO, the interim CEO. Like, there are so many ways outside forces could have torn them apart, but the fact that they stuck to it being about the three of them and their relationship, again, is really what made it for me. Yes, yes. And also, I think there's, like, the discipline, the the narrative discipline of it, I think... So, okay, so, so I was having this, like, conversation with Connor because I had the ending spoiled for me before we got to see episodes 9 and 10, classic. Um, and I was, like, having this conversation with him after the end of episode 9, and I was like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, like how do you think this is going to end? And and he was like, I'm not sure, but I but I think it may be that, that Kendall takes it in the end and that, that Kendall is ultimately the CEO in the end. Um, and he's like, you know, I think it is really just the story of this the show is the story of Kendall becoming his father. Um and I think that's true. I think that is absolutely the case. Um and this this show really is um the story of of Kendall becoming his father. But the narrative discipline of it all means that Logan is dead. Um and they didn't kill off Logan Roy in the middle of the last or the very start of the last season for no reason. Um they don't do death just for the sake of death. They did death to make a point about the type of person that Logan Roy is. And that is a type of person that could not have carried on into the end of this show. You know, much much the same way that like Jared Tolkien had to kill off Denethor um, in Return of the King because you cannot have a figure like Denethor kicking around um, in this glorious new day, new dawn of, of Aragorn's reign. It, it complicates the narrative too much. That narrative discipline in killing off Logan, showing that Kendall had become like Logan, and then effectively killing off without actually killing Kendall is just this like this show has never wavered in what what it's about it has never had an identity crisis importantly it has never responded to like fans who do insane discourse online it has been very clear about what it's doing it's also very like technically like technically and sort of um or, or technically cohesive technically confident in suit uh, in pursuit of like narrative discipline you know we talked about this a lot on andor where like every element of the production um rolls on in, in service of this higher thesis that, that the show is is presenting narratively and and the same is so true with succession you know whether it's the you know having things staging things on or near water to to kind of cope with kendall's mental state um and whether or not he's gonna kill himself or things like um 
or, or, or you know, things like how um, Shiv dresses or, um, you know, bits of, you know, cinematography like like Kendall in episode nine um, orating on the, the, the importance of um, being the man who just does things, who just gets things done and builds steel hulls and, and not listening to, um, you know, the underlings. And it doesn't matter what you do so long as you always build this, like an, a tremendously fashy rhetoric with the, the high altar of a Catholic church, an American Catholic church, in the background, like these things are, there is no part of the show that is not done with a purpose. Um, or, you know, even in episode nine as well, like the shot of, you know, you hear um, you and Roy talking about um, the him and Logan having been on this boat. And then you cut to the shot of Kendall and, and Roman and the camera is moving like they're on a boat. And and all of this stuff is so disciplined, so creatively clear and and, and competent and and um, thoughtful that I, it, I basically am at a loss for words because I know this is like you know, film school 101 or whatever, but it just, it's not the kind of thing that we get anymore. And so because it's not the kind of thing that we get anymore, it just feels like magic watching it. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Uh, the comp I have not in anything related to the narrative, but the mo the other more confident, like, or as confident final season I saw as this is the Americans. Um, because, you know, some people thought the Americans was going to turn into like a James Bond kind of final season where it's all actiony and there's a lot more stuff, but no, it, you know, really focused in on the Jennings and a Stan Goodman or Stan Goodspeed. No, wait, that's Nicholas Cage in the rock, but whatever, <laughs> uh, Noah Emmerich's character, like it stayed true to what itself, whatever people on the internet were thinking or wanting to happen at the end, like it never for any sense during its four season run really lost any sense of what it wanted to be or what it was trying to say, um, which I think is just excellent because it's very easy for shows to be swayed by popular contention or expectation. Um, I would say a lot of the problems with the last half of Game of Thrones is the fact that I do think they internalized some of the early season reaction um, and then it lost kind of its edge on that front into the latter seasons. I'm not going to litigate that here. Um, but I, And I think this is... Like we were saying, like people were shocked that, um, you know, this was the final season because it wasn't really planned to be the final season until they really like up and shot and wrote and they're like, oh, wait, th this is perfect. We don't need another season. Um, and it goes into something that I think has always been around, but is especially worse because of the MCU and franchise storytelling and all that stuff is this constant need to what happens next? What happens after we cut to black or what happens after, you know, the final episode? Like what happens with Shiv's kid? Uh, <laughs> do Shiv's kids grow up to be like something or Ken's kids? Do they end up being something? What's Tom like as CEO? Like none of that matters at all. Like I can't stress enough how little any of that matters to whatever the show is trying to say. Um, and then there's also people who are kind of worrying that like this show did not like provide some kind of unifying theory about like billionaire media people but it did. or like, right it did. The people who are mad about yeah, this just like, weren't fucking watching. Yeah. I mean, it's there and it's there in the way, like you say, it's, you almost feel like you're doing film one one because this is just the basic tenets of storytelling. The point of like, you know, art and especially let's say, I don't know how much I want to really buy into the hype or smell the own farts, but like HBO prestige drama, like these are supposed to be shows that have a little more like difficult conceits or are a little meatier to chew on than like, say a Marvel movie or a star Wars movie. Um, so it's just like, 
I don't know. We have to like think about it a little bit harder and not in like a standard wish fulfillment or power fantasy. Um, I want the woman to win kind of analysis that usually flies for those kind of things. There's like, I, I think basically we are entering an era of like media literacy that is so great and so like insurmountable, but like we will never actually get another show like this again because the next generation of filmmakers just like basically can't fucking read it. Like, th- like, like I think there is like a, you know, not to be like, oh, if Action Johnson or whatever, or Chuck the Spaceman from 1950 was like the height of like intellectual depth and you had to be smart, uh, you know, IQ 400 or whatever the Rick and Marty copypasta is to like understand it. But like there are, we are, we have to, the, media literacy is a skill. And like all skills, it's something that needs to be honed and refined and 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 dealt with over time. Um, like you cannot possibly expect to start learning to speak a language and then not speak it for five years and then be able to speak it as well as you did when you were learning. That's just not how these things work. Media literacy is the exact same thing. Um, being able to understand symbolism, um, being able to understand narrative structure, um, being able to read between the lines and understand subtext. These are skills that must be practiced. Things like the MCU, things like DC, things like, sorry, Greta Gerwig's fucking movies. I'm just going to go balls to the walls here. Like, these are not things that train people to think beyond the absolute most obvious neon text on a screen. Um, these are things that enable people to, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, tune in, tune out. Um, and, and, and so people are losing these skills um, and they are losing the ability to understand what is to people who are media illiterate, a very obvious fact of a show. Um, and, 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 and that is going to be gone, um, you know, in the way that like the people who grew up watching, you know, the dumb space flicks of the fifties, um, later grew up to be George Lucas. And then the people who grew up watching George Lucas grew up to be the people who made whatever the MCU, like the people who are watching the MCU now are going to grow up to make something that is a reaction to the skills learned watching the MCU. Um, and and other things. And so the inability, like the sort of like meta inability to understand what is a very clear thesis from a show like this um, is, I think, basically the clarion call of doom um, in terms of culture. Like, we're just shit out of luck. Yeah. We're done. Um, I mean, yeah. it's it, yeah, I was just gonna say it speaks to wealth. Uh, it speaks to uh, generational wealth. It speaks to like right wing, both politics and media. Like it's all like there. It. It's just because it doesn't have a character. It doesn't have Robert Downey Jr. turning to the camera and saying, like, this is what this means. It's you're supposed to kind of because, you know, good art really doesn't say these things like there's tensions that emerge between the characters or within a character within themselves, within their own heart. And through those tensions and conflicts and friction, that's usually where the audience steps in and draws meaning from these things. The fact that it didn't provide some unifying theory or some hopeful message is like, this isn't meant to be didactic art. Yes. Um, it's it's just really not. Um, there are things, and I mean, I bring and we bring our ideology, our politics, and the way we conceive the world as it is and how it should be into our analysis. That's completely fair game. But just because no one literally tells you, well, the meaning of succession was that, you know, women always lose or something like that, like that, I, it, it's just frustrating because it goes back to what I was saying, you know, my boring thing where we just have to like, think harder about things yeah. um, instead of just like running to react to like, you know, what is like the plot, like the plot almost doesn't ever matter really. And I, obviously I'm being a little uh, facetious there, but it's just like the things that happens are the things that happen. Those aren't really in dispute. What the real meaning from 
uh, a rich show like this is kind of the interpretation and the meaning we're trying to pull from that. Um, and that's why I, one thing I loved about this show and that it kind of separates itself from the other HBO shows I think about, namely the throne stuff. But there's so many things in here that would be like a plot point from an earlier episode that blows up later. Um, I'm thinking of like Kendall's name being on that will. Um, and it, maybe it's underlined or maybe it's crossed out. Like, People in that week after that episode were debating that furiously. Was it crossed out? Was it underlined? Guess what? It did not matter at <laughs> all because all because the, they are telling a television show and a television show is focused on the episodicness of it. That was a conceit for one episode. Uh, same thing, even even with the drowning kid, it didn't really come as a big like you know season shattering event. It just came up in conversation with characters who already knew about it, um, thanks to last season's finale. And then the result of that is just kind of the personal conflicts between the characters um it's not it's not writing things the way that we're used to where everything is like an easter egg or a clue or a hint or foreshadowing for what's going to happen a season and a half down the road yes yes and i think there's also like we kind of lose something which is an understanding that like art is a there's like art is a tripartite relationship between like the art itself the artist who creates it and 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 the audience the viewer um and the viewer both like as an individual and also like as a collective and i think there's something like really revealing in the way that like people talk about this show in particular which is like these strong reactions that people have um is is in some ways the purpose of the art um but not when it's strong reactions about the outcome of a plot line, like you're saying. Like, you know, the yes, other thing. Yes, that, like beautiful. That's so well said. Like, I, you know, I personally am horrified that Greg's name being written on that document didn't mean that he was going to come out and be like the new Logan Roy. I'm horrified. I think that's the worst. Like, no, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, like what, what it actually is, is the fact that like the show could evoke such strong reactions of people. The fact that like you can feel personally wronged that Roman didn't get it or that Shiv didn't get it or that, you know, Tom and Greg aren't sucking and fucking on screen. Like all of these things, that is a, that is part of how you are meant to relate to the art. You are not really meant to relate to the art by like litigating like D&D rules lawyer style, whether like something matches up with like an, a chronology that you have decided on in your head. And like what really the purpose of this show should be to you is like, thinking about why it is that it made you react in in the way that it did. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I've really been thinking about, and I it's just one of these moments in which I'm like, God, I wish I knew more about music, is, you know, Nicholas Brittle did both. I need to learn how to say his name. I do it like it's either Nicholas Brittle or Nicholas Brittell. Um, But um, he did the music for both this show and for Andor. And so it's impossible for me to not, not draw comparisons between the funeral music that we hear in episode nine and, and Marva's funeral in Andor. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about is there's like this this fantastic um, violin quartet adagio, I guess, um, in, in Logan's funeral. Um, and it's so perfect and so clean and also so nondescript. Um, it is riffing on the succession theme. Um, but there's nothing in it that like sounds unique. You could tell me that it's just a standard piece of classical music that he whipped out from somewhere. And I'd be like, yeah, sure. That makes sense. There's nothing really if I hadn't been thinking about the fact that he is who he is um, and that he also did another show that I care a lot about, like I would not have really clocked it as anything of note. Um, but there is something so remarkable in the fact that it is this perfect like violin quartet. Um, no note is played out of order. It, it, it sounds like nondescript 
inoffensive music. And you compare that to what 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 this same composer wrote for the funeral march in Andor, where it's this brash, um, uh, like, you know, gargantuan sort of collective effort. It's scrappy. It's distinct. Um, it's it's imperfectly handled. Um, and, and thinking about the sort of different reactions to that, you know, it's hard for me to hear the, the funeral march from Andor and not be like, oh, my God, like not only is this heartbreaking, but shit's about to pop off. And I think I could hear the, the the music from Logan's funeral, beautiful though it may be, um, and never have an emotional reaction to it. And, and I think it's it's that kind of thing where why are we reacting in the ways that we're reacting to to this piece of art that is put in front of us? Is there a reason for that? That kind of line of questioning, I feel like, has kind of dropped out from underneath a lot of people. And instead, it's just it's almost animalistic, but like not in a kind of like liberated way. It's this like rote kind of brutish animalism, which is like react, react, react. The only thing that matters is react and never analyze, consider, show some self-awareness about why react in this way. Yeah, man, I, I don't even know where else to go from here. Um, where else to go? Did anything else happen in this episode? Any thoughts on Matson? Um, I know he played a very minor part in how this went. Um, I'm sticking to my Fortinbras analysis. He basically is um, the Eastern European who comes in the end and witnesses the bloodbath. And then is like, anyways, I'm in charge now. Um, that's basically <laughs> what I, uh, which is especially funny coming off uh, last year where we talked about him in Hamlet or the Northmen where he plays Omelette, um, which is, you know, the opposite. I of keep Fortin forgetting Brass about that as ways. well. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, um, but is there anything else you want to say about Gojo or anything we haven't touched on yet? I, I think the... Alexander Skarsgård performance, Skarsgård's performance is, I think, so wonderful because there's such an inclination. Like, I think the the strength of succession is that with the exception of Matthew McFadden, who was still basically an unknown to a lot of people, um, and, and Brian Cox, who was also still basically unknown to people outside of the British markets, really, um, this show cast unknowns. Um, and it was the fact of their being unknowns um, and also the fact of their confidence that them being in the show would make them stars that I think was really a, a particular strength of the show. Um, and and then them having cast a big name like Skarsgård, I think he did a remarkable job at like not, you know, we've talked about this before, but like it's the capital A acting versus the lowercase a acting. And he did a remarkable job of not being Alexander Skarsgård. And, and I know that's kind of like a, that should be something we take for granted. But I think the fact that his character is so effectively bland, um, he is really just a plot mm -hmm. device, mm -hmm. but a magnificently executed plot device. You know, I hate to do this to him, but like compare it to his father um, in Andor, where Luthen is an impossible to ignore character. And though he could be just a plot device, he was never going to be just a plot device. And 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 there's no way in, in in his portrayal that he could be anything but this sort of almost instantly iconic character. And Madsen in this show really just serves the purpose he needs to serve. He occasionally has other elements. Um, you know, the, the shock of hearing him say to Tom, oh, I'm going to fuck your wife at some point. That was that felt to me almost as like ghastly violent as as what Kendall later does to Roman. All of these things, like he really knew to to let this be a show about everyone else. And that's, I think, the level of like creative and acting restraint. I really want to see in a lot more actors and, and just anything going forward. Oh, yeah, I agree with all of that. One thing I generally applaud uh, HBO with how it casts its stuff is they actually generally get, you know, smaller actors or people that are more 
normal looking. And when I say normal looking, I mean not fucking, you know, <laughs> superheroes with like a six pack abs. Like they get people who look like everyday people in all, you know, shapes, body sizes. They could definitely do better. I'm not saying they do a hundred percent job, but they do better than basically every mainstream movie or shows on like Netflix and stuff like that. Um, like Deadwood has like one of the greatest collections of just like people who look like people. Um, and I really appreciate the fact that the main cast was that. So it does kind of stand out when you do cast an Alexander Skarsgård, who is, you know, kind of in the mold of a traditional alpha male, you know, actor, even though I wouldn't say his career or his persona really line up with that. Um, so it's like when he, when a guy like that is cast and he shows up as Matson, you're like, Oh shit. Um, and then just how unimpressive he is as a person, I think works so well because everyone who is as rich as someone like Matson is, is literally the most unimpressive fucker you'll ever meet in your life. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I think that's the thing, you know, loads of people were like, Oh, the show isn't enough about how boring these people are. And I'm like, these people, these are characters these are people? boring. Like the only reason we're interested in them is because the show tells us to be interested in them. And because everything mm -hmm. else about it makes them interesting. Like, these people are sh boring as shit. Nobody would ever want to have a beer with them. Tom, maybe. Tom, I would definitely yeah. want to like hear what he says, but the rest of them are boring as fuck. Like, nobody can look me in the eyes and be like, Greg would be a fun person to hang out with. Lies. Lies and bullshit. Like, all of them are boring. And 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 that that ability to kind of accept that these people are boring and that it's the narrative and, and the stakes that the show sets for itself that makes these things interesting is is just an enormous benefit. I mean, I hate to compare it to the worst show ever made, um, but, you know, think about how in The Rings of Power, every five minutes you have a character turning to the camera to restate the stakes. Um, it just doesn't happen in succession. Um, it, it just doesn't. It, 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 these characters are allowed to be boring, but the plot is allowed to be interesting. Whereas in, um, you know, in, in, in Amazon uh, Prime's Lord of the Rings, um, the characters are boring, even though they're not really allowed to be. And the plot is also boring, even though they're not really allowed to be, because there's like not a confidence in any of it. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm just going to miss this show, like not in that I want to see more of it. I absolutely do not. If they do a movie, if they do a season five, if they do this, that, the other, I will not watch it. Um, I do not care, but I will miss the like essence of this show um, now that it's gone. OK, uh, to wrap up, uh, I'm going to throw you one question. Now that the cast of Succession are free from their succession obligations, what one actor would you love to see in Andor season two? <laughs> um, oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> I would like to see... Oh, shit. Uh, uh, who am I kidding? Matthew McFadden. Uh, make him an Imperial. Um, put him in to be crushed by... Uh, by... Oh, God. Party guys. By Dedra. Just let him be sniveling and pathetic again in that way that he makes so compelling. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. Um, part of the reason I get to ask you this is because I knew you'd say him so I could pick someone else, which, you know, because I would also probably pick Matthew McFadden first. Um, I would love to see Jay Smith Cameron be <gasps> on the rebellion side. Oh. Um, one of the random par partisan leaders that Saw Gerrera mentions, just make her uh, one of them. Um, you can maybe almost do the whole like 
kind of cringy general Leia stuff from the sequels, but like do it correctly with uh, J. Smith Cameron, like kind of playing that role. Um, I think I would love to see that. I want to see um, Greg as a Rodian, as like a, a Greedo. <laughs> I just get him, let him get popped in the middle of it. All right. So usually at this point in the podcast, we run down our $10 and $5 patrons with their Middle Earth names. But as we alluded to up top, we want to make some announcements to our regular listeners. As you heard, we will be taking a little bit of a break as we basically roll right from the Rings of Power, right into Andor, right into our ongoing Two Towers coverage, and then right into Succession. So we've been blasting away at this for almost like eight months with very minimal breaks. Um, So we are going to take a little bit of a break in June, hopefully come back and start with Return of the King or our lead up to our Return of the King coverage sometime in July. We will be dropping some Patreon episodes uh, to the public uh, over the course of June. Uh, we also hope to record on the Tears of the Kingdom. So if you've been playing the latest Legend of Zelda game, you will get mine and Emily's unadulterated thoughts. The bigger scheduling note we want to put out is that when we get into our regular Return of the King coverage, we are probably going to go to a bi-weekly model where we are putting out episodes every other week, um, just because that's better going to accommodate both our recording schedules and the rest of our lives, which me and Emily somehow also have. <laughs> um, and to go with that, we understand that a lot of you are you know, supporting us through the Patreon we're going to drop everyone down to the $5 level. We're going to eliminate our $10 tier um, and just have everyone at the $5 level. And we will make all Patreon episodes that have been dropped available to those $5 patrons because I'll admit we were kind of not great about always getting out those $10 episodes. Um, so uh, just so you know, we're going to be lowering the Patreon um, just because of the way timing works out. That will begin with the July billing cycle. Um, so that way, we, um, so that's why we wanted to let you know up front. But we will make sure we drop three to four episodes in June. Some of them are older episodes, just so we aren't leaving you hanging for the next month. I will put out, or sorry, we will put out a full Patreon message detailing what our schedule will look like. It'll, um, and all of that will be forthcoming sometime in the next week or two. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and our coverage of Succession. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get access to special bonus content that will be changing in some degree or another in the next coming month. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I will say this, in our A Song of Ice and Fire coverage, we have hit Red Wedding Month. Um, so we will begin <laughs> discussing the four or five chapters that detail the murder of Rob Stark and Catelyn Stark at the Twins at the hands of David Bradley, um, Walter Frey, <laughs> sorry. Um, so uh, we will be putting out three episodes that cover all the chapters in which the Red Wedding is contained. And I will also be doing a special Star Wars episode talking about the first 15 minutes of Star Wars A New Hope with Emmett on the Patreon for Nauticast as well. Um, so that's what else I do. Emily, who are you and what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm Emily. Um, I am on Twitter as JRR Tweeting, which is where I will be attaching one of those Tears of the Kingdom rockets to the board that Kendall and Shiv and Roman were hanging out on in the sea just to see how high I can get them into space before one of them willingly jumps. <laughs> I'm so happy for like the dozen listeners who get that reference. This is going to be great. <laughs> 
toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglir and Drithian, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Uh, yeah, let's give an extra shout out to Stephen, who's been so- sound editing us for... Sorry, there's a siren going by. Um, that is not a siren for Steven, but uh, he's been editing us for almost two years now um, and has kept up with our pretty hectic schedule, especially turning around the succession episodes uh, before the newest episode comes out the following Sunday. So, Steven, we really appreciate your work um, and we look forward to recovering Return of the King with you. Absolute hero. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So, until next time, bye. Bye.